Genesis 42, we're going to pick up where we left off on Sunday, and if you have not heard Sunday or even the last couple of teachings, we've been in the life of Joseph, and tonight we come to a, a season, a, a time of high drama, high drama for Joseph, for his brothers, for his family as things come to an apex, to a, to a head in our study. You may note if you've been looking on YouTube that we're going to be uh, studying beginning in verse 28 or so of chapter 42, and then we're going to do chapter 43, chapter 44, and chapter 45 tonight. Now, there are two things I can say to you about this and how you approach it or, or how you think about it. Uh, number one, I shared earlier today with some friends, with some staff, that, that I'm actually going to do more chunks. I, in my own mind, I call this kind of teaching chunking because I will take chunks of, of the sections that will move much quicker. Some things are repeated, uh, some of the stories, and, and as we walk through, there are gonna be large sections that will go through quickly that you may not expect, especially toward the end, chapters 44 and 45 will move much, much faster than we do in the first part of the study. So just understand that as we're looking you know, at, whoa, 42, 3, 4, 5, we're looking at a lot of chapters here tonight, it's gonna be fine. The second thing that you can consider or think about as we study this, and I often go here in my own heart, is the Chinese underground church that told evangelical pastors when they began to go over there in the late 80s, early 90s and, and to go to teach these small house churches, they showed up and would teach these little 20-minute sermons and the people weren't even done getting their coffee. I mean, they, they said, wait, if you're gonna come over here and teach us, you need to be ready to teach for at least two hours because we're used to four hours. No, I'm not gonna go four hours tonight, so you can rest easy. Genesis chapter 42, the last thing we heard the brothers of Joseph say in verse 28 is, what is this that God has done to us? And I will say again, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, one and all, that's the question to ask right now. Not what has Governor Inslee done to us, not what has Donald Trump done to us, not what has our state or local or, or community governments, not what any man has done to us. And I say that with deep compassion because as I said when we began, I understand that there are not only people sick from coronavirus, but there are people in pain from coronavirus because they've lost jobs or income and the economic strife is getting heavy on us. I get that. Do you think God doesn't? The question that we must keep asking, what has God done to us? And not like victims. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Not as victims, oh, what's God done to us? No, what is God doing here? He is always, he is always several steps ahead any human person, any man who thinks that they rule or reign. Remember, he directs the king's heart like the water courses. He sets people in government. God knows what he's doing. And if you're worried or concerned or frustrated or upset or any of that, what has God done? That's the question to keep asking, and thankfully, that's the question that Joseph's brothers got to. What is this that God has done to us? Genesis 42, 28. God was at work, though maybe not exactly as they thought. Verse 29, when they came to their father, 
Jacob, back now in the land of Canaan. Remember, they left Shimon, their brother, behind in jail in Egypt, and they've come back with grain to the land of Canaan to their father, verse 29, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, (laughs) Joseph, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. I want to remind you that among these boys are, uh, well, Levi's there, Levi, who along with Shimon, who right now is still back in Egypt in prison, but they took out an entire city. These are tough guys. He spoke harshly with us. Wimps. He took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, so they thought. And the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies but honest men. I will give your brother, Shimon, to you and you may trade in the land. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. What's the problem? They got their money back. You'd think that'd be a good thing. Listen, they didn't recognize the gift because they feared the cost. They didn't recognize the gift. They feared the cost. They'd only already been charged with spying, and now they fear they're being set up as thieves. They fear there is a greater cost to pay. They assume some dark, devious plan is at work, and you know what? People do that with God. They don't recognize the gift. They just fear that there's a big cost to the unbelieving Grace can be unbelievable. To the hard-hearted, forgiveness can be hard to take. Remember that, brother and sister in Christ, when you're talking to a non-believing friend or family member, that grace can be unbelievable. Forgiveness can be hard to take, hard to receive. Why should I be forgiven? Why should I get grace? It can't be as easy as free grain. There's got to be a cost. Why? Because in our lives and in our world, there's always a cost. There's no such thing as a free lunch among human beings. But grace is free. And God gives freely. But to the hard-hearted, forgiveness is hard to take. I think about that seen in the life of Jesus when he was invited by a Pharisee named Simon to come and dine at his house, have some lunch. Not because Simon was a big fan, but he was looking for dirt on Jesus. He invites Jesus into his house. Jesus comes in. They sit down to eat. A lot of the formal customs we find out in the story are not done. Jesus' feet aren't washed. He's not anointed. He's not received and welcomed warmly like you would normally be, especially if you were a visiting rabbi. But he's seated with Simon at the table and a woman comes in. The Bible just calls her a sinner, a a sinner. And you can guess what kind of sinner, doesn't matter. But Simon knew she was a sinner. 
which means either everyone in town knew she was a sinner or he had some other knowledge. We're not going to get into that, but they're at the table. The woman comes in. She has an alabaster vial filled with perfume. This would be very expensive. And she begins pouring it on Jesus' feet, and she's weeping, and her tears are dripping on his feet, and she begins taking her hair and washing and drying his feet with her hair, and Simon looks at this scene and says, if he really was a prophet, he's thinking this in his head, if he was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 40, Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them will love him more? (laughs) Simon answered, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and she has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The unbelieving Pharisee did not understand grace. Grace was hard to receive. He had worked for his position. He had labored for his religion. His righteousness was his own, bought by his sweat and his labor. He could not believe the forgiveness that Jesus was extending. He could not see the grace. In the same way, Joseph's brothers can't comprehend that their grain had been graced, that they had gone down to Egypt with money to pay. They paid the money. They received the grain. They came back, though Shimon is in Egypt, they came back. But now their money's there. The grain was free. They couldn't comprehend being graced, simply gifted this free grain. More sad than that is Jacob's response as they all look around in dismay. And the word dismay there at the end of verse 35 means they were fearful. They were afraid. They're trembling now. And their father Jacob, verse 36, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Shimon is no more. And you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. You ever said that? Have you ever felt that? Maybe you wouldn't even say it out loud, but you think, man, everything's going wrong today. Everything's working against me today. This is not fair. There are few things more faithless than the victim mentality. I can tell you the instant faith has departed me is the instant I've begun to play the victim. All these things are against me. 
you and I know the reality in the story here. Jacob, God is for you. God is for you. How many dreams, how many visions, how many revelations had Jacob received to this point in his life? Five that are accounted in the scriptures. And there will be another one. How much does it take to know that God is for you? That God has a plan laid out in your life that he took Jacob out of the land, brought him back into the land, set him up, promised he would be with him. Again and again, reconfirming the Abrahamic covenant. And yet now, in this season, late in life, Jacob's old, he's a little more beaten up, he's lost Joseph, he thinks he's now lost Shimon, they wanna lose Benjamin too, all these things are against me. When you're in that place where you feel like it's all turned against you and everything's gone wrong, your best place to turn in scripture is Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect, God's chosen? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? And then Paul says, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. By the way, he's at the right hand of God. Remember, Benjamin's name means son of my right hand. Jacob's fear is now to lose Benjamin. If they should go back and take Benjamin with them to Egypt, you're gonna, I'm gonna lose the son of my right hand. I'm gonna lose Benjamin. Jesus went to the cross and came out the other side, resurrected the son of God's right hand at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. Paul goes on. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Listen, will tribulation or distress or famine, or persecution, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Paul says, hey, as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What's been killed in your life in the last month? What's been put to death? For some, it has been a job. Others have actually lost their lives. These have not been easy times. This has been the most bizarre time of any of our lives. We recognize that. We understand that. Paul is speaking directly into us right now. The Spirit is talking to you and to me, saying in verse 37, but in all these things, not in spite of these things, not aside from these things, in these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And someone out there is looking at me and saying, then why are you sheltering home? If you've overwhelmingly conquered, how come you're sitting there in an empty church while we're all sitting in our homes? <laughs> how come you're cowing to the government? 
Let me just say quickly and clearly, it is not because I fear death. It is not because I'm worried about the disease for myself. It's because I love this fellowship. We went on pause for the sake of one another. It's because I love you. It's because you love me. It's because we love other people. It's because while I don't fear death, I don't fear disease, I don't want you to have to go through disease. I may know, I may know if Les were to pick up coronavirus that he would go straight to heaven on a flaming chariot, no doubt. Amen. However, I don't want him to lie in a hospital bed for three weeks on the way. I don't wanna impose that on somebody else. And I understand, I've seen all the stats, I've seen all the posts on Facebook, I know everybody, I've heard the conspiracy theories, all the stuff that's rolling around here. But my friends, it is for the sake of loving each other that we're on pause right now. And it is also because we're asking, what is this that God has done to us? What is God up to? Hey, if God is for us, who or what can be against us? I know that I know that even when it seems like all these things are against me, God is for me. And so to those who are fearing right now or pushing back and angry about what they see as the loss of freedom or the dangerous rise of globalism or Bill Gates' involvement in all this, can I just say to you to listen again? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, that's the bottom line here. And I'm not dismissing any of the possible things that people are putting out there or that that could be going on. But if God is for us, who can be against us? My friends, I see the rise of globalism. We've been talking about this for years. We know that globalism's gonna happen. This is not something that can be stopped. And we also know, because the Lord says it's gonna happen, we also know he's the one who's gonna deal with it when he comes in his kingdom. And then there's gonna be a dictatorship, a loving, gracious, perfect dictatorship over all the world with Jesus seated on the throne. And at that time, my friends, no one will stand against Jesus. In fact, Revelation chapter six, verse 15 says, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Nobody. Nobody can stand against Jesus. Nobody can stand against what God is doing. So be alert, but don't be afraid. Be ready, be prepared. If you are in Christ, never forget God is for you. Verse 37, all these things are against me, Jacob had said. And then Reuben spoke to his father saying, 
You may put my two sons to death. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my care, and I will return him to you. He's talking about Benjamin. Let me take Benjamin, I'll bring him back, and if I don't, you can kill your grandsons. Well, that's great, Reuben. What a fantastic suggestion you put out there. What grandfather (laughs) in his right mind is gonna go, well, that's a good proposition. So if I lose Benjamin, I can kill my two grandsons and we'll be even. What? Some of the things that are said, I'm telling you, in this story before us are redonk. Verse 38. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. Wait a minute, he alone is left? What about the other 10 brothers? Or nine if Shimon never makes it out of Egypt. What about the rest? He alone is, he alone, listen, is left of the sons of Jacob's beloved Rachel. Yeah, there's major favoritism going on in this dysfunctional family. I've lost Joseph, Jacob says. I can't lose Benjamin because Benjamin is the only tie to Rachel who had passed away. So Jacob, this deep feeling man, says my son shall not go down with you. His brother is dead, he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Reuben, it's just a dumb idea. No grandfather is gonna accept those kinds of terms. And Father and sons right now, note this, get this, as they begin to eat the grain that they brought out of Egypt, they are in lockdown in Canaan. Their jobs have ended. There's no food. There's a massive famine. There's nothing they can do but sit around and eat what grain they have and try and hope that maybe the famine at some point will lift, but they're stuck home. Relevant scriptures, I'm telling you. Chapter 43, verse one, now the famine was severe in the land, which is another way perhaps of saying God's turning the screws a little tighter. And it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, Judah, note this. Judah spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother, that is Benjamin, is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, is your father alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? And they're arguing, and they're debating, and they're fighting, and there is hunger and distress and argument and division over things that at this point are water under the bridge. This whole conversation in these first seven verses doesn't make any sense because it doesn't matter. What he asked, what he said, how we feel about it, doesn't matter. This is where we are. But divisions happen. Has division started to happen in any of your homes? Has frustration overboiled? That's exactly what the enemy wants. 
He, he wants to divide. That's what he wants to do in this fellowship. Can I just tell you honestly, my concern right now is for our entire fellowship to walk through this and come out the other side, a unified body of believers. And do you know what? In this fellowship, we have people ready to march on the Capitol. And we have people who are not sure they ever wanna leave their homes again. My concern and my love is for both. Why? Because that's God's concern. And that should be all of our concern for all of us. We will walk through this together. So it doesn't matter who said what, it is what it is. But watch this, Judah again. Judah stands up, becomes a major player in the story. Verse eight, Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die as well as you and our little ones. Now remember, Reuben had offered his own sons saying, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill him. That's stupid. Judah says now, verse nine, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. I will be surety. Oh, I like Judah. Wasn't so sure in previous chapters. But Judah, for all his failures as a son, who betrayed a brother as a brother, as a dad, as a <clears throat> father-in-law. First father-in-law in scripture who sleeps with his daughter-in-law. The whole story, the Judah and Tamar story of Genesis 38. Hey, something's changed. Something's changed in Judah. This is a different man. This is the one who said back in Genesis 37, 26, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him for he is our brother, our flesh. Hey, let's make some money off the deal. And as I said, this is the same one who messed up his own family. Two of his, two of his three sons are dead because they were so wicked. His wife, a pagan, dead. All he has left is his youngest son and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who has now born two children who should be his grandchildren, but they are actually his children. Out of that mess, Judah stands up and Judah says, I will be surety. Surety. You know what surety means? It's the word erben. Erben in Hebrew means I will be the pledge or I will be the exchange, me for him, my blood for his salvation, my life for his. That finally gets Jacob's attention. And by the way, out of the tribe of Judah, one would willingly become the pledge, the surety, the exchange, Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I think we see seeds of that right here. Oh, oh, not that Jesus would, I mean, Jesus is gonna come through the line, but this line becomes an important line in Israel because now the forefather of that line, Judah himself, becomes honorable. In a sanctified, I believe a sanctified life now is surety for his brother just as Jesus would be 
or is now our surety. Revelation chapter five, verse five, one of the elders said to John, stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw standing between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb, an arneon, if you went through our Revelation study, you remember a little lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. If that's confusing to you, go back and listen to our Revelation study. But know this, the lion of Judah became the little lamb slain. Why? To be our surety. His life for ours. Our lives for his, giving himself to be the pledge of God's grace forever. And Jacob hears Judah. This, this causes him to stop. He relents. And by the way, Judah as surety, this is gonna play out as the intrigue deepens here. Verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags. Carry down to the man as a present, a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. By the way, I wonder if those are things that Joseph would have loved and missed being in Egypt. Now, Jacob wouldn't know any better, but it actually might be kind of a cool gift to bring some of the home food <laughs> to Joseph. But verse 12 says, take double the money in your hand, take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was simply a mistake. In verse 13, take your brother, Benjamin, also, and arise, return to the man. Now watch this, listen to Israel here. And may God Almighty, El Shaddai, grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now, first of all, he scrambles to put together this nice little gift. <laughs> this is ironic to me. This nice little gift is a little gift. We're talking about giving a tiny little gift to the man who has everything. You know, Joseph, in this, this man, this ruler in Egypt, second over all of Egypt, has complete control over everything, can have whatever he wants. And you're gonna give him some Burt's Bees, a honey bear, a pack of Bubblicious, a splash of aftershave, and some trail mix. It's kind of ridiculous. And it's, it's tragically ironic. Why? Because Jacob is thinking perhaps we can bring a little gift and we can curry favor with the man in Egypt. Listen, get this. It's tragically ironic because Jacob already has favor with this man in Egypt. Maybe if I do this, I can gain a little. He already has grace. He already has favor. He just doesn't know it. And again, people approach God this way. The tragic irony of the good person in unbelief. Well, if there is a God, I'll just tell him the things I did that were good. I'm gonna bring my little pack of Bubblicious, my aromatic gum, right? 
and, and my pistachio nuts and almonds, my little trail mix, and my myrrh, my aftershave. I, you know, I'll, I'll put some stuff together. I'll give them a little gift. My goodness. <laughs> my goodness. Your goodness is not good enough. It's ridiculous for human beings to think we can gather a little present for God and somehow appease his wrath that way. No, we need surety. We need a pledge. We need an exchange. The favor of God cannot be bought. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the little lamb slain, our surety, our pledge. And if you think you can add to that, you're sorely mistaken. You can't bring anything to God to buy what he already is offering you. You just gotta receive it. And note this, interesting to me, back in chapter 42, verse 36, note this, he's called their father Jacob. And right after that, he's the victim. All these things are against me. But now in chapter 43, verse 11, and roughly, we think maybe two years have already gone by here with Shimon in prison and the guys back eating through the grain and now they're out. Somewhere within two years. And suddenly now, it's not their father, Jacob, it's their father, Israel, who says, if it must be, then it must be. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. He's a victim as Jacob. But we're starting to see faith as Israel. And, and you'll find that pattern. It's not precise, it's not always, but I can tell you this much, whenever he is Israel, he is acting in faith. Sometimes he's called Jacob and he still does faithful things, but man, there's divine resignation going on here. When he speaks as Israel, when he's, their father Israel spoke, now he's starting to speak with faith. Now there's some trust going on. Look at it this way, victimization, all these things are against me, is never an attitude of faith. Victimization is a rejection of faith. But resignation, Specifically, resignation to El Shaddai is always an attitude of faith. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. If I lose my job, I lose my job. Well, that's easy for you to say, Pastor, you have a job. Hey, if you don't have a job, I could not have a job. The point is, God knows. The point is, we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us as well. Divine resignation says, he is in charge and I'm not. So whatever happens, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. If I lose, I lose. But I know I'm not going to ultimately lose. In all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors in Christ Jesus. Resignation. Israel's faith is now emerging, at least seems to be trying to surface. And I ask you, are you resigned or are you striving? Are you playing the victim? Can't believe all these things that are happening to me. Or are you saying, Lord, what will be will be. And I'm not talking about K Sarah Sarah. I'm not saying whatever. No, El Shaddai. If your plan is for me to be bereaved, then I will be bereaved. 
By the way, the word bereaved in the Hebrew means I will lose my children. If that's your plan, then there's something bigger that I can't see. Are you, am I, and I've been asking myself this all through the week, am I resigned to the will of God? Am I yielded, am I surrendered to the perfect will, to the timing of God in our lives, regardless of all other things going on right now, am I resigned to the will and the purpose of God? Divine resignation. Verse 15, I think we're seeing this now in Jacob. So the men took this present, (laughs) this little gift, and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. And they arose and they went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house. Slay an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. And there, there are shades of the father of the prodigal son here. You know, the son comes home, what's he do? Slay the fatted calf. Time to feast. Now Joseph has not revealed himself to his brothers yet. That's about to happen. That's gonna happen, well, in a bit. But these men are to dine with me. Bring them into my house, Joseph says. So the man did, this, this servant, this house steward, did as Joseph said, verse 17, and he brought the men into Joseph's house. Verse 18, now the men, the brothers, were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. They said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks for the first time that we're being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us or attack us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. What? We're gonna be slaves and our donkeys. I'm telling you, if I was about to be made a slave, I would not be concerned about my donkey. This whole thing is asinine. A little joke for you, a little pun. <laughs> And our donkeys. Now, I'm pointing this out because look at how ridiculous fear really is. How stupid. Oh, what about our donkey? Who cares about the donkeys? But fear makes you irrational. Makes you think things that are not that important are suddenly super important. It's like you invite someone to church and they're like, I don't know, man, I could lose my donkey. I don't know if I want to go into that place. They might take something from me. What happens when that plate gets passed? Well, we don't pass the plate here. But what happens? I go to a church and they pass the plate. They're going to expect me to dig deep in my pocketbook. I'm not going to do that. Or or, or what if I go to the church and they start to pray over me? What if someone comes up to me with that anointing oil stuff? What if I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I get overcome and the next thing I know I'm rolling on the floor. I, I can't have that. I don't want to lose my donkey. You know what? All Jesus wants to give is life. He wants to give food. He wants to give love. He offers salvation. See how foolish fear is that it keeps people out of the doors of churches because they don't want to lose their donkey They're afraid they're gonna lose something of themselves that in the big picture where salvation is at stake makes no difference whatsoever. It doesn't matter. Jesus wants to give life. But to the fearful, and I recognize this, to the fearful, the fear is all too real. 
doesn't matter if it makes sense or if it's ridiculous. It's very real to that person, which is why I think it's really helpful to have a servant standing at the door. Verse 19. So they came near to Joseph's house steward, and they spoke to him at the entrance of the house. And they said, oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, and it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full, and so we brought it back in our hand. And they're trying to pay off the steward, right? Verse 22, we've also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. They're like, man, you gotta help us out here, bro. We got double the money, we're we're good for it. We're not thieves. They're so afraid, they're so worried, they're so stressed out. And listen to what the house steward says, verse 23, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. (laughs) He says, I had your money. In other words, we received your money. We put it back in. You paid for the grain. Your God determined that you should get your money back and that the grain should be free. And then he brought Shimon out to them. Oh, Shimon, he's out of prison. Here he comes. And then the man brought them in into Joseph's house, gave them water, and they washed their feet, or it's possible he washed their feet. That's that's unclear in in the passage. Washed their feet and gave their donkeys fodder. Isn't that marvelous? See, this is what a servant of the Lord does. And and I I can tell you right now, I could have done an entire sermon on Sunday on verses 23 and 24. I decided to do it real quick for you right now tonight because there's other things to get to. But this is marvelous to me. This is what the servant of the Lord does. Our message is, first of all, be at ease, or literally in the Hebrew, shalom. Peace, peace, peace. Brothers and sisters, the world needs to hear peace. The world needs followers of Jesus not to be all up in arms about conspiracy theories. They need the followers of Jesus to be speaking peace. Hey, man, it's gonna be okay. There's one bigger than all this. God's got this. We are on the cusp right now of an opportunity unlike any in our lifetimes to bring people to Jesus but not if we're acting like the rest of the world. Peace, he says. (laughs) Peace, and do not be afraid, and your God and the God of your Father has given you treasure. Let me retranslate that. Peace, don't be afraid. Your God has given you treasure. Our message is the gospel. Peace, God's got treasure for you so that we can have this treasure in vessels of clay the gospel of our salvation. That is the message of the house steward, stewards in the household of God. And then what do we do? Well, what does the steward do? He brought Shimon out to them. So we get to be involved in the bringing out from prison other people. Brothers and sisters get brought out of prison. And then we all come into together giving the gospel, seeing people released from their chains in prison. We all come together then into Joseph's house, into the house of God. This is what the household servant does. We give the gospel, we bring the the prisoner out, we 
bring everybody together into the master's house, into the church. What do we do? We offer them. Oh, he says, it says they gave them water. We offer the living water of the Holy Spirit, of the living God. John chapter four, verse 10, and John chapter seven, verse 38. Living water, we have that to offer. And they wash their feet. Hey, our feet still get dirty walking around this world, so we gather like we are tonight for the washing of the water with the word. And we get our feet washed yet again, and we wash our, each other's feet in service and in love. That's what the house steward does. And hey, we'll even feed people's donkeys if we need to. Whatever it takes, nothing is beneath the house steward who is a servant of the master. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says, let a man regard us in this manner. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to this. Let people regard us in this manner as bondservants of Christ, doulos, lowest form of servant, servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful, trustworthy. What does that mean? Do your job. What's my job? You're a house steward in the household of God. Do your job, share the gospel. Bring him into the master's house. Release those who are in prison. Offer the living water. Bring peace. Wash feet. Feed donkeys. Whatever it takes to serve this world into the Father's house. Verse 25. So they prepared the present, <laughs> present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. It's getting weirder for them now. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand because it was so small. And they bowed to the ground before him and he asked them about their welfare. Huh? He says, is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is, is he alive? What does the second in command over all Egypt care about our old doting father? And they said, your servant our father is well. He's still alive. And they bowed down in homage. That is, they, they prostrated themselves down on the ground. They laid flat out. Middle Eastern culture to, to ruling authority. You, you get down on your face. And as he lifted his eyes, that is Joseph, and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God, Elohim, be gracious to you, my son. Verse 30, Joseph hurried out for he was deeply stirred over his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and he wept there. Oh, Joseph is so moved. I told you that Joseph is gonna weep for his brothers. He's gonna weep for his brothers a total of five times. And five in the Bible is the number of grace. But what's really interesting is Joseph will weep for his brothers three times before they know it's him. Three times before they understand that Joseph is their long lost brother. Three times before they recognize him. Guess what? Jesus wept three times when Israel did not know that it was him. 
John 11, verses 1 through 11, he wept over a death, the death of Lazarus. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, he wept over a city, the city of Jerusalem. Luke 22, verses 39 through 46, he wept over our sins in the garden of Shimon Gethsemane. And all three times, Jesus, like Joseph here, was weeping over his brothers, over the children of Israel. And all three times, his true identity remained for the most part concealed. In fact, Luke 19, verse 41 says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Hidden. Why are they hidden? You ever wondered that? Why didn't Jesus come blasting out of the clouds on fiery chariot or on his great white steed the first time? Here comes Messiah, kaboom, and out he rides. Woohoo, you're king. Israel rises, the world is conquered, it's all done. Why are these things hidden? Because the true identity of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior can only be received by faith. In trust. And that's what's going on with Joseph. The whole reason he has not revealed himself to them yet is he needs to bring them to a place where they will trust him and he needs to know that their hearts are ready to trust him. That's why the test is still going on that we talked about on Sunday. He's still being careful to guard his emotions, his feelings. He leaves the room to go weep over his beloved younger brother, Benjamin, who he hadn't seen in 20 years. In fact, Benjamin was probably a toddler the last time Joseph saw him. Think about the emotion of that and how overwhelming that would be for him. So he's taking his sweet time to bring self-revelation to his brothers. My friends, God will do that with you and with me. He will take his sweet time. We have this tendency to rush out ahead of the Lord. We can fix this. We gotta do this. We can make this happen. And I look at the fruit of the Spirit, and I remember that love, joy, peace, patience are right at the top of the list. And then again, it rounds out, I think I said this on Sunday, with self-control. Peace, patience, faithfulness is in there. These are the things, listen, these are the things that grow faith. Faith is cultivated and matured in patience and in faithfully trusting God in divine resignation as we talked about before. In trusting in the surety of Jesus, faith matures and grows. But when I strive, when I rail against, when I'm frustrated and angry, these are not of the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 31, then Joseph washed his face and came out and controlled himself. <laughs> and he said, serve the meal or, or serve the bread. So they served him by himself and then by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. So the picture is they're probably all in the same large room, but the Egyptians are over there in the corner because as the Bible says, Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. So the Hebrew bros are over here at their table and Joseph's at his table and the Egyptians are over at their table because they, I mean, it would be disgusting to eat with those Jews. A little anti-Semitism going on there. 
but Joseph's there and they're all, they're all the same place but not together. But note this, verse 33, they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth and the men looked at one another in astonishment. Why? Because they're seated in birth order. How do they know? How do they know the birth order? They're all older men now, with the exception of Benjamin, who's maybe 17, 18 years old, maybe a little older, 20s. How do they know to seat them? Reuben, Shimon, Levi, I mean, right down the line, Judah, right down the line, and the guys are looking at each other going, did you tell them what our birth order is? I mean, these guys are freaking out. It's, this is marvelous. Because bit by bit, they're brought into Joseph's house. They're fed at Joseph's table. They're seated in birth order. All these things are going on. It's so bizarre. What is happening here before our eyes? And then verse 34. He took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Five is again the number of grace. And they feasted and they drank freely with him. There is obvious favoritism that is on display here, my friends. No doubt to the bewilderment, again, of the brothers. He's feeding us from his own table. He's bringing us victuals and tasty treats right off of his table. He's handing to, but look at what he's giving Benjamin. Well, no one's complaining, mind you. There's plenty to go around. Plenty to eat and drink. They're all getting full. But man, Benjamin's side of the table is just covered with food to, to five times as much. No one obviously complains, but it reminds me of another feast and another favoritism that was bizarre that happened in John chapter 13 at the last Passover, verse 21 Jesus became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, John. And Simon Peter gestured to him and said, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him, which is a strange saying because that's what you do to your closest friend or most honored guest at the feast. I'm gonna dip and give. And he took and gave it to Judas of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Weird favoritism. He favored Judas at that feast. Why? I've told you before, I think Jesus was at a last-ditch effort before Satan entered him saying, will you stand with me? Judas, you don't have to do this. You don't have to go through this. He's showing favoritism because such is the love of God. For the one who is going to betray him, Jesus is yet saying, will you stand with me? Even the son, the Bible calls him the son of perdition, the son of waste. And you know what Judas does. Well, back to Joseph and the brothers. Tables piled high in front of Benjamin. 
the feast ongoing, they're drinking. Verse one of chapter 44, now buckle up for this. Then he commanded his house steward saying, fill the, man's, the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. Put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. And he, the house steward, did as Joseph had told him. The house steward didn't know why. I don't always know why Jesus tells me to do what he tells me to do. I just do it. Verse three, as soon as it was light, the men were sent away and they, <laughs> note this, with their donkeys. Oh good, the donkeys are all right. Now Joseph has a final test for them. Have they really changed? And the test is this, note, will they stand up for their youngest brother this time? They didn't stand up for Joseph 20 years earlier. They sold him off. Will they stand up? This is why he wanted Benjamin back. Will they protect Benjamin? Will they stand for Benjamin? Will they look after Benjamin? And Benjamin becomes the final test. Verse four, they had gone, just gone out of the city and they were not far off. When Joseph said to his house steward, up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not the one from which my Lord drinks and which he, in, he indeed uses for divination? And you have done wrong in this. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, pause. Divination? Joseph's silver cup is a cup for divination? In the Hebrew, there's a wordplay going on here. It's divining he divines. Is this not the cup by which divining he divines? Do you know where the word divination draws its root? To divine in the Hebrew is nachesh. And its root word is nachash, which means serpent. Divining he divines. Serpentining he it's, it's to divine by the serpent. The whole reason why Nahash is used is divination, biblically speaking, divination is cultic, serpentine, satanic. Joseph's got a silver cup. Put my cup in the bag of Benjamin and tell them when you catch up with him, you've taken the cup that he divines with. This'll spin around your theology a bit. Joseph has a divining cup? What? And eventually we know it's gonna be banned in Torah law. Deuteronomy 18, 13, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners, nachash. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. You don't do that. And we know historically, even back to the days of Joseph, there were cups History talks about that were used by Egyptian magicians for divination, and there were different ways they would do it. They would pour water into oil and see how it went in, and they would read it, or they would put precious jewels or gold bits or silver in there and watch how the light played off it, and then they would make their predictions or their prophecies based on what went into the cup, or they would pour oil into water, different names for this divination. And again, again eventually it was banned by God and I, I'm just, just to say this much, we can only guess what's going on, whether or not Joseph actually did such a thing. Did he have a divining cup that he used as a divining cup? Or was it just that in his position, this is something you had like in, with the china and the silver that grandma passed down? 
You know, he's second overall in Egypt, so he's gonna have a divining cup because that's what would be given as a gift or something, and maybe he just used it for, I don't know, his milk and cookies. I don't know. Was it simply a sacred cup that Joseph set aside? I, I just don't know. I favor the latter because it's clear that Joseph's faith is in Elohim. It's clear that the first 17 years of his life, he was raised in the house of Jacob and Joseph did believe in God. And by the way, Joseph didn't need a cup. He got divine revelation in his dreams. What would he need a cup for? Either way, whatever the situation is going on with Joseph, you gotta know that there's another parallel here and that is with the cup, just as Jesus would raise the cup of redemption at Passover. Luke 22, verse 20, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Matthew 26, 39, then in the garden of Gatshimon, he said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Understand, it is the cup of redemption that Jesus is talking about, the cup of redemption in his blood, but the cup that he asked to have passed from him in the garden is the cup of the wrath of God. Oh, don't make me drink that. Nevertheless, divine resignation, not as I will, but as you will, said he who is our surety. Psalm 75, verse eight, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams, it is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs, and Jesus drank that cup that was the cup of redemption. What's really interesting to me is understanding and knowing Joseph's intentions here. That silver cup was the cup of redemption. That's why he put it in the pack. He wanted, he desired, he longed to see his brothers restored and redeemed. This silver cup would bring their hearts to full light. What are they gonna do when, when Benjamin is found with this cup? This silver cup, eventually, if you look ahead in the story, will bring them back to Joseph. This silver cup will bring the whole redemptive story of Joseph and his brothers to a full and beautiful conclusion. And the point is this, this final test is what they would do with Benjamin. Again, going on now, verse six, he overtook them, the, the house steward did, and he spoke these words to them. And they said, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Oy vey! Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we will also be my Lord's slaves. They're so sure of their innocence. <laughs> Sometimes we do that with God. I'm so sure that I'm innocent of this. Really? Are you? Careful. We are not as innocent as we think we are. So he said to them, verse 10, now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you shall be innocent. Well, then they hurried, each man lowering his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the oldest, drama increasing, and ending with the youngest, sack after sack after sack, no cup, no cup, no cup, no cup, and they're going, see, we told you, it's all good, and they get to Benjamin, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. What? 
You think the brothers were terrified before? Verse 13 tells us, watch this. Then they tore their clothes. And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. They tore their clothes. You know what? That is exactly what, Joseph, what, what Jacob did back in chapter 37 when he realized that Joseph, when he thought Joseph was dead. Jacob tore his clothes. Now the brothers tear their clothes. Something's changed. Their feelings for this younger brother, their protection. Continuing on, verse 14. By the way, wait, curious side note. I, I I need to add this in. And we really are close to being done. But again, if we were in China, we'd have about three more hours to go. This is curious to me. Benjamin is the one who is caught. He's caught with a cup. Zechariah 12, verse 12 is a prophecy that says, or Zechariah 12, sorry, verse two, behold, God says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling or trembling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. Why is that interesting? You know where Jerusalem is located, this cup of trembling? In the tribal region of Benjamin. Just as the cup was in Benjamin's sack, so the cup that causes reeling for the whole world, Jerusalem, is in Benjamin. And it is right next, just slightly north of the tribe of Judah. Verse 14, then Judah approached him. And he said, oh my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. And then he does a replay. My Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. And now his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, and we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we can go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know my wife bore me two sons, Rachel, and the one went out from me or was killed, and I said, surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. Judah, Judah is sharing the story. Judah is laying this out. Note that it is Judah who stands up, not Reuben, not Shimon, not Levi. No wonder eventually Jacob is gonna say, Genesis 49, verse eight, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah, he says, Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Remember this, Judah gave himself as surety for Benjamin, 
And this is a changed Judah here. This is high drama here. And Joseph knows the full story, everything that Judah is recounting. He knows the full story of what his brothers told Jacob. And by the way, Joseph now knows that his dad thinks that he's dead. This is gut-wrenching. Joseph is hearing all this and recognizing the full story. This is amazing because Judah is laying it out. It's like repentance time. It's full confession. Here's everything that went down, he says. And then in verse 29, if you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant, watch this, here comes Judah standing up. The lion does not sleep tonight. No, Judah says, verse 32, your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I would see the evil that would overtake my father? Judah becomes surety. Completely, I will take his place. You let him go and I will stay and be your slave. Wonderful, take me instead. That's real repentance. You realize that's, that's what John the Baptist called fruit of repentance, fruit in keeping with repentance. This is not just some story. This is not just blurting out some words. This is Judah saying, I take it. Everything that I did wrong, all of our sins, all of this, it's on me. I bear the blame. I am sorry. I will take the hit for this. And when you approach Jesus like that, you know what the response is? Grace. Jesus doesn't need to hear your repentance for his sake. You need to hear your repentance for your sake. I need to hear my repentance because when I lay it all out before the Lord, I realize there is none that is righteous. All are guilty. I am not innocent like maybe I thought I was. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And my friends, that fruit is on full display in Judah's life. Chapter 45, verse one, then Joseph could not control himself. And before all those who stood by him and he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Here with the third weeping, they start to realize who he is. He just breaks down and note that, by the way, in verse one, there was no man with him when, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. There was no man with Jesus when he made himself known to the disciples. Came into the upper room, no one else was there, just Jesus and his closest followers. 
And so we see this replaying early on. He wept, I love it, verse 2, so loudly that the Egyptians heard and the household of Pharaoh heard. I don't know how close Pharaoh's house was, but this was huge. This was sobbing. This was full, all of the pain and the sorrow and, and the anguish of 20 years just comes gushing out. All of the desire to be with his brothers who have betrayed him comes rushing out. What a remarkable family reunion. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Can you imagine the looks on their faces in this moment? I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And again, the word dismayed there is afraid. They are, they're at the end of themselves, man. They are so freaked out. I am who? I would imagine the first thought running through their minds is he, he knows about Joseph. Wait a minute, he's Joseph. How can he be Joseph? And Joseph said to his brothers, just like Jesus says to you, Right now, to me tonight, please come closer to me. That Hebrew word closer is literally come near. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You know what, essentially, he doesn't say, I'm not angry with you, which he's not. He says, don't be angry with yourselves. Don't beat yourselves up. You know, when God offers you grace, stop beating yourself up. It's over. Don't be mad at yourself. Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five years, which is how we know we're two years along now, in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting Verse seven, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father. Say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen. By the way, Goshen, good land, good country. And you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and all your flocks and your herds and, and all that you have, and there I will also provide for you. There are still five years of famine. You and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see. The eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. In other words, now by verse 12, he's speaking Hebrew. He's speaking the language, man. He's revealing himself completely as their brother. You must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. You must hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept for the fourth time and Benjamin wept on his neck. By the way, to fall on his neck means he hugged him. My daughter Naomi said, how did he fall on his neck? That must have hurt. No, no, he, he hugged him. He grabs hold of Benjamin. That's to fall on his neck. And he wept and he kissed all his brothers. Man, this is forgiveness in the nth degree. This is the way forgiveness works. This is how families get restored. When the brother who is most wrong among the, wronged among the brothers receives them and loves them and kisses them and forgives them. And he wept. 
for the fifth time, verse 15, and afterward his brothers talked with him. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. This family reunion, well, almost, almost. Still gotta get the sun and the moon down there. Still need mom and dad. Now mom would be Leah, not Rachel, because Rachel's dead, but Leah still is now in the position of mom and wife to Jacob. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the land. This is how highly Pharaoh regards Joseph, that he would do this. Now you are ordered, verse 19, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. We're gonna bring you down to Egypt first class. Do not concern yourselves with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. Watch this. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin, 300 pieces of silver. And I've told you, and you will keep seeing this, silver means redemption. It will be silver coins that are the coin of redemption for the firstborn in Israel. It's a silver cup that spoke of redemption for Benjamin, got them all back in the house. It is 300 pieces of silver given to Benjamin. Silver speaks of redemption here. And note that Benjamin also gets, not only did he get five times as much food, now he gets five changes of garments. And I pause just simply to say what a picture here of redemption in the silver and of grace in the garments. Five changes of garments. Isaiah 61 verse 10, and this is what happens when we receive forgiveness, when we are received by the Lord and we receive his gracious forgiveness that we rejoice greatly with the Lord. Isaiah 61 verse 10, my soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Paul says, hey, Galatians 3:27, all who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So the changes of clothes, five for Benjamin, and the silver, this speaks of redemption. It speaks of new clothing. It's like being born again. It's a stunning picture before us here. And then verse 23, and to his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys. There the donkeys are. Now they get to bring stuff. Loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys. So even the donkeys are being taken care of loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. And watch this, verse 24. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he, Joseph, said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. I love that. Don't quarrel on the journey. Why? Man, the forgiven, changed, redeemed person no longer has a quarrel with anyone not with God, not with other people, but listen, not with myself. What this phrase is in the Hebrew can also be translated, do not be provoked to rage. And the implication is not that the brothers, they're saying don't fight with each other. 
but he's saying, don't beat yourselves up over this. As you are heading home, don't sink back into guilt and shame and rage. Man, it is over. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, if you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, if you have received his grace, the sin is over. Don't beat yourself up anymore. Don't quarrel with self or God. Don't wallow in your guilt. It's over. It's done. And it's so important to grasp this because we are only fully enabled to love each other when we fully receive the love of God in ourselves. I cannot love you if I haven't received his love. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you gotta love yourself. Like the greatest love of all is to love yourself. No, it's not. That's the greatest self-centeredness of all. The greatest love of all is the love of God. And when I receive the love of God in Christ Jesus for myself, that's what fills my heart with love for other people. That's what allows me to look at someone who I vehemently disagree with over any issue and still say, I love you. I really do love you. The love of God. And we receive that love and we don't fight about it. We don't wallow in the old man, the old woman. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ controls us. The NIV says the love of Christ compels us. I used to think, well, that's, I like that, compelled. I don't like being controlled. None of us wanna be controlled. That's why we don't like what's going on right now with the government. We don't wanna be controlled. We're Americans, man, we're free. The love of Christ, listen, the love of Christ controls us. His love is what determines my behavior, my choices, how I will act. The love, and then Paul says, love of Christ controls us, having concluded that this, that one died for all, therefore all died. I got no rights. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. When I receive that love, I can love that way. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Well, the story concludes, verse 25, and they went up from Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him saying, can you imagine this conversation? Dad, <laughs> Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, that is Jacob, he did not believe them. Why should he? Verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And then, note this, then not Jacob, but then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go see him before I die. Jacob, his heart revives. He's failing. He's, what? I can't believe this. He's 
perhaps at death's door, his heart revives. What is it that makes the heart revive? Knowing the son is alive. The son is alive. Jesus is alive. He is sending for you. For me, he is coming to get us soon. He will call us home and all the worries and fears and stress and, and, and guilt and shame of life in this world and on this planet, over, done, forever. Because the son is alive and he is sending for you and he is sending for me. And I will end with this, Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us? He's praying for you. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, Divine resignation, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Him, our surety, the son is alive. But before Jacob goes, the Lord has one more word for him, one final appearance, one last revelation of Israel, and we'll talk about that on Sunday. Father, thank you for your word to us. This redemptive story is so stirring. Lord, if it was the story itself, it would be a marvelous tale. It'd be a wonderful account. But because we see Jesus represented here, because we recognize we are the brothers, we are the fallen, we are the foolish, we are the fearful, we are the ones who need redemption. We see ourselves in the story. We see, Lord, you, Jesus, in the story. And like Jacob, our hearts revive when we can say the son is alive. The son is alive. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are alive. And because you live as you said, so we will live. And I thank you for this profound, wonderful, divine truth. We worship you in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.